0: Hey, it's Bill Simmons. We're not just reacting to the NBA playoffs on my podcast. We're also doing it on the ringer NBA show and the mismatch podcast. They are coming after some of these NBA playoff games. Check it out Monday, Wednesday and Friday nights on the ringer podcast network. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the press box. Brian Curtis of the ringer here, along with producer Isaiah Blakely. The NBA finals start tonight. And one thing I love to do this time of year is look at the people who've been covering these two teams all season long, especially when they're really good at their jobs. Sean Grandy is the Boston Celtics radio play-by-play announcer. He got that job 21 years ago, and he has been calling games with his partner Cedric Maxwell ever since. And this week, Grandy's job has a kind of structural advantage. Contracts dictate that during the playoffs, the Celtics TV guys have to step aside for ESPN to show the games. But on radio, Grandy gets to keep announcing Celtics games all the way to the end. It's fitting because radio has always felt like the medium that speaks most directly to the fans, and Grandy and Maxwell don't have to leave them until the very end. Grandy flew from Boston to San Francisco on Wednesday, and that night we talked about what it's like to call the NBA Finals, about the concept of Homerism, and about how Grandy got his first job in the NBA. It involves a snowstorm and Kevin Harlan. Here's Sean Grandy. All right, Sean, you've been calling NBA games for more than 20 years. What's different about calling a game in the finals? You know what is different about calling a game in the finals is the
1: noise. The noise around you, the uh, a million security people, extra PR, people freaking out when the game is the same game that you did last week. It's the same game that you've been calling for, as you say, 20 years. People say that I've transitioned recently, Brian, into the. Long-time voice of the Celtics, which is code for <laughs> right. You know what it's code for. You're getting old. It's like I used to listen to you, and I was in high school. He's like, "Come on, man! Like, give me a break! I, I shouldn't have." Because I remember when I took this job, there was Mike Gorman and Tommy Heinsohn and Cedric Maxwell, and I've always been the youngest. I'm the youngest guy in the group, right? Like they're always the older guys, and then suddenly, so, so you don't. It's like uh, Rodney Dangerfield and back to school, like you want to you want to look thin, surround yourself with fat people, right so you I was always like the super young guy, and all of a sudden you turn around and you realize, yeah, you have a, a big birthday, and you've been doing this for twenty something years. It is you know when the game starts, it's the game, and obviously you're trying to contextualize everything, and you're you're in the moment, but you understand that you know the, the its place in history and what you're doing at these moments to be remembered forever, but really. And you're asking me this now, as we're talking the day before the finals, I'm remembering now the memory thoughts are coming back from 12 years ago and 14 years ago, but all the other chaos that exists on the side. And that's as a broadcaster. Imagine being a player, getting here for the first time and dealing with media day and all the other crazy stuff that comes with it.
0: And chaos literally means people next to you while you are sitting at the broadcast table, people whirling around you, that kind of thing?
1: Well, it can be, you know, as I said, when the game starts, at least the game starts, obviously one of the differences, the NBA will have a a little, we're all used to being on Zoom anyway, our whole life's been on Zoom the last two years, and we'll have a, the NBA will put a little camera up there so they can watch us, you know, during the games. But I think broadcasters, generally, we're getting used to that now because that's becoming a popular, you know, cutaway shot to get the broadcasters go, whoa, oh my gosh, what an amazing play. And Kevin goes, no regard for human life because you want to see, you've never seen him when he says it, but then now we all get a chance to, to peek in. But I think for the most part, the game, you know, the commercials are a little longer and it's harder for me to have my pregame conversation with Mike and and Jeff and and Mark Jackson, whatever, because there's so many people uh, milling around down there, but you, at least there's a ramp up to it, (laughs) right? When you've had the second rounds and the conference finals and, uh, but it's really, you long for nine Oh seven
0: Eastern time. Tomorrow, when it's back to doing what you do. You remember what you said when the Celtics won the title in 2008? I do.
1: Uh, yes. And I remember what Max said two can seconds get, later. Can you give what, it to the That's how everybody who, remembers it.
0: <laughs> can you give it to the people who have not been on watching a loop well, of Boston yes, sports?
1: which is obviously most of you. So there's a, there's a very long story leading up to it. But suffice it to say, we were supposed to have a sideline reporter for the 2008 playoffs for, for Celtics for radio. And it fell through. So the very long story of that is that Max ended up uh, with a poncho on and we sent him off the broadcast to do do interviews on the floor. And the Celtics had a slight lead, you might remember, in that game. There wasn't a ton of uh, suspense in the foot. People ask me all the time. That's a popular question, obviously, Brian. Do you know what you're going to say right, for a championship? And you have ideas. And this is a perfect example of what just happened the other night. I get on the bus afterwards, and a lot of the guys from the front office, whatever, like, hey, what did you say? What was your big call? And I try to explain to them what I'm going to explain now, which every announcer would understand. It depends on the game. That game, game seven, came down to a final play. The ball was in play. You know, Al Horford got a rebound that had to secure the game, so you're not, you know, if you go from that, to some rehearsed notion of what you wanted to say at that moment, fans are on it. They know it. They know you're going to some, whatever, just call it. Now, if the Celtics had won in 2008 in game five, and I still remain sh- the most shocking result of any game I've ever done is that the Celtics lost game five in LA because you don't lose that game. So you can fly 3000 miles to take a beating, which is what happened. And I couldn't believe that game got away. That would have been different because it was, Father's Day, and there were a lot of guys in the Celtics that had grown up without fathers, and Doc Rivers' father had died during the season, and there was a poetry to that day. Well, that all got forgotten. And then you go to the next game, and it's not a buzzer beater, and it's not Kobe rising for a shot and missing, and the Celtics win. The Celt- that game was over in the, early in the second quarter. So yeah, I had an idea of how I was going to ramp up and tell the story, tying it into uh, you know something I had said on opening night. But in any case, this is, by the way, what happens when you ask a broadcaster to do a long story short. Anyone, anyone in my field that uses one word when they can just as easily use 10 is just not trying hard enough. That's, that's the bottom line of that. The, the ball was big baby had the ball when the clock hit triple zeros and he threw it up in the air. So I'm doing my thing about the 21 year odyssey to get, you know, 22 year odyssey. The full circle has been completed. It's banner 17. And before I could say the mission statement, which was the company, you know, that was what the owners came in years earlier and said Banner 17 was the name of the company. So the mission statement is mission accomplished. And as I was about to say it, I hear in my headphones, I got the ball, which is Max. The ball had landed in Max's hands. Now in that (laughs) moment, I went on because as a broadcaster would know, sometimes you get things in your ear that are in queue, as we like to say, or they're not going over the air. So I'm just praying in the moment that the engineer has him in queue and didn't leave his microphone hot. But of course he did. And that is how Max will be remembered. I think the next day on all the talk shows, they had him in great moments of history. You would hear Max in the background, like one small step for man, one child, <laughs> I got the ball. <laughs> and that's how, that's how great moments, uh, great moments happen. But it's, so it
0: was organic and it was local and it's remembered. How did you know as a kid that you wanted to be a broadcaster? Right, I had great, plans to play second base for the Mets.
1: And as most of those kids who grew up in Manhattan will tell you, difficult to launch an athletic career when your knees are gone from playing on concrete by the time you're, you're six or seven years old. I think like a lot of people, there are there are tapes of me uh, getting called to Thanksgiving dinner uh, by my mother of me trying to call a football game off the, you know, the old fashioned tape recorder from the late '70s or whatever. Um, it was always uh, a passion. I always loved the announcers that defined my childhood. For me, I was very, you know, lucky enough to grow up in New York, where you had so many teams and so many great announcers, obviously, to to grow up listening to. And there comes that moment when you realize every every man, ninety nine point nine percent of men. Reached the point where they realize they're not going to be professional athletes uh, in their life. And I had always envisioned a life in which I would be flying around the country and doing games. And I, I couldn't imagine anything else. And that this was my path. And this was either I chose or what was chosen for me. And this is what age you come to this realization? <laughs> I would say... I'm trying to think probably when like pony leg pitchers started striking me out. So I would say by 14 or 15, I had a pretty good idea that this was going to be, uh, as I said, there are not a lot of kids from now here's the the new second baseman. He grew up in Greenwich village and uh, you know, uh, usually it's, as I said, we, I coached my son in Little League in, in Boston, and we realized when we have snow in April, like you realize why well, very few players come
0: out of the uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts Little League to, uh, to play in Fenway. I read that growing up in New York, an early influence was Bob Murphy, who was calling no, yeah. Mets games on the radio at that point. What struck you about the way Bob Murphy sounded?
1: Well, you know, it sounded like baseball when he did it, number one. But also what's interesting is that I'm of the age, the, the generation before me, Grew up with radio, and listening to games on radio. Mine really did because by the time I'm a kid, like ESPN is starting. You're watching ga- All the games are on TV if you have cable. If you're lucky enough to have cable, and I kind of came to radio later, but with going to the games. This was before you could watch on your phone or had even portable TVs. Uh, you know, radio was the way to stay connected to the game at the game, and it was going to Mets games and listening to you know to Bob Murphy and Gary Thorne. Who uh, who did the games with him. and you know, again you're just attached to the announcers you grew up with, and you you know it's, it's, you learn their their style, and it just feels. And then when you I think at 15, 16, when I realized okay this might be my thing, when you're at the games, and you're hearing the play by play, and you're seeing the same I'm seeing the same thing that Bob Murphy is seeing. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? And you know baseball is the perfect uh, perfect sport for radio. Really, one of my dreams came true nine years ago now. Um, For years, Dave O'Brien came to the Red Sox. And the Red Sox, we were on the same station, the Red Sox and the Celtics. And he was working at ESPN at the time. So there were going to be 15, 20 games every year he wasn't going to be able to do. And of course, given my uh, historic great luck, the Celtics got really good at that point. And suddenly we were playing deep into June. So it just didn't work out. And then I think the final year, Uh, in 2013, we were going to be out by April. So I ended up, I did 15, 20 Red Sox games that year. It was the greatest, greatest summer job of all time. It was the true art I was doing. I'm I'm sitting in San Francisco right now. I got to do a Timlin scum against John Lester, you know, down the street. It's just like, nothing gets better than this. It was such a dream come true. And it was in San Francisco, I did the, the last game. And I get a call the next day saying, uh, yeah, we just traded you to the other radio station. And the Celtics moved We basically so Max and I went to the other radio station, and that was the end of my my dream summer job. Uh, you know, nine years later, but yeah, I, I reminisce fondly
0: about it. college in Boston. And you later go to work at weei the big Boston sports radio station. What did you do initially at weei
1: Well, anything that needed to be done when you're 21 years old and you're not even out of school yet, you. Do whatever you can do. And that became like I was, I got offered a full-time producer job um, at 21 or 22 and I'm producing for Glenn Ordway and it was doing Celtics at the time and the talk show. And I was doing a lot of play-by-play on the side at BU and BC and anything, as I say to kids now, anything you can do, you do. Just get a hold of it. And I was lucky to be, I was doing games when I was at BU. I was doing hockey games. And I was doing football games. And anything you could get your hand on. College hockey really became, I was lucky to stumble into that world. And that really became sort of a launching pad for me. But EEI, it was interesting, even being there at the time. And then later when Glenn sort of began, ran, ran the station in the mid 90s. I was in a very popular number one afternoon drive talk show. And I played sort of a, I did the updates on that show and I played sort of this character that was similar to what my good friend Mike Breen was doing in the morning for Imus, which is that, you know, you take stuff out of context and you're just sort of playing counter, playing young generation X guy to the older guys in the studio and just creating that sort of counterbalance. And a lot of ways i say that was the hardest job I've had because you're writing original comedy. Every day, and as anyone who's tried to do that, try to write a monologue or whatever, that
0: is, that's really difficult to do. Did I read you were known as Flash Boy when you were doing this? That was that was the character, and I worked very hard. It's funny because when it's
1: radio, you're largely it's the same voice. People knew me, but if you do it in a certain case and you perform as a character people it's it's like listen i've got along long your 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 buddy david shoemaker and i are long pro wrestling guys and whatever sure we it's a that's the the art of it is people want to believe right so you just you just create this the flash boy character i built it so that when i eventually left somebody else could take it over because the idea was the people in the studio the main talk guys and women they're always going to be in their forties and fifties and a different place. So you want, which, you know, that's ironic, you know, I'm so now I'm 50 and I'm in the opposite place, but that should always be a counterculture. You know, at the time flash boy was that kid outside tower records on a skateboard, you know, again, generation X counterculture should always, everybody should be represented on a talk show. And so it was just a way to, you know, to create a, create a character. And it was a way for a 20, 24 year old to, his rent and pay his mortgage until uh until some play-by-play place came going
0: yeah you're the young punk on the show essentially that's the idea that's exactly <laughs> it. and then celtics play-by-play announcer howard david can't make a game because it was snowing is that correct and What's your what? research you were deeply researched into the uh fascinating uh world
1: yeah it was a one of those days you're just wearing jeans at, it's funny because now you now I wear jeans, which cost more than like the suits I had at the time when I was a kid. Uh, you're just doing your updates that day. It was like a quiet day right before Christmas. And Howard was doing Monday Night Football, the National Monday Night Football broadcast. And he got, he couldn't get back to Boston because of snow. And that's how a lot of these stories begin, right? We're not all, we're not all Kevin Harlan at the University of Kansas and come here as an NBA job at 22 years old. And, uh, you know, you walk right in. It was uh, knock on the door at four o'clock in the afternoon. Howard's not gonna make it, get over to the garden. And those are the moments you have, to, you know. We usually have them, right? What's the scene from Wall Street where Charlie Sheen, you know, life comes down to a few moments. This is one of them, right? Like you get in to see Gordon Gecko, and an hour I I I ran home, changed clothes, and then I'm sitting in front of Rick Pitino doing the pregame, yeah, doing the pregame interview, and you're just doing the game. And I knew Cedric Maxwell from the show. And it's just, the funny thing is when you're, you know this, if you know anybody in their twenties, anybody with any ambition or drive or whatever, it seems like when you're 24 or 25, it's never going to happen. I'm I'm getting older and it's never going to happen for me. And one day it happens. One day, I, I forget how old I was then, 26, 27. Here comes the call, get over to the garden and do the game. And it's not a matter of being ready for that one specific game. You've been preparing your whole life to call games at a high, high level. And suddenly you go and there's the game and you do what you, what I tell people, I tell kids, these sports casting camps, which I never had when I was a kid, uh, you're speaking to college students, be ready, be ready, do everything you can do because an NBA game, I'm calling game one of the NBA finals tomorrow night. That's the same. I used to go down to the famous fourth street cage, sixth Avenue. My dad would take me down there when I was a kid to see the great players, right, in New York City. So Nancy Lehman in there once, like when I was a kid. To see the great players, the game is the game. But, you know, in the NBA finals and in the NBA, you'll have the symphony behind you, and it'll have that amazing sound, the arena sound, and you'll be saying names of, you know, famous players and the greatest players in the world. But the game is the game. And if you can call, I used to take, uh, when I was in college, local BU baseball and local college baseball in New England is pretty, not low level stuff. It gets no media attention. And, but there were all these games going on. So I would, rather than, you know, let's say you're supposed to go to class, take, you know, a tape recorder out. Right. And you do your baseball. You just sit out there and you turn on a mic and people are staring at you for a while, but pretty soon they're sort of into your play by play. And the, the point is that that game, that's baseball. It's the same game I did when I was doing the Red Sox and at Camden Yards. If you can do that, you can do the other. It's just like
0: every other skill in life. right? You do it hundreds of times and thousands of times, so you get pretty good yeah. at it after a while. Okay, the game is the game. But how did you feel walking into the garden, doing your first <laughs> Celtics game? Like
1: a kid in my dad's suit. Um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was such a whirlwind. Sometimes the best things to do, you know, when you take your kids to the doctor and you don't tell them the shots coming. It's like, don't even wait. Anyway, what's going to happen? Is it going to go? What? Oh, there was it. That was it. That was the shot. It, there was no time. You're just in full on race mode. It wasn't like they said, Hey, listen, Howard's going to miss a game three weeks from Thursday or you'd be overthinking it and over preparing. And, uh, you know, you're just trying to get some kind of sketch of a chart, a very primitive looking chart. You know, I, that was something you always over prepare when I, I was doing football at the time, you know, Boston college. And that's like a full week of preparation where you have these meticulous charts and boards that you've been putting together for a week. Here, I found out like an hour before I had to be at the garden that I was doing the game. So you don't
0: have time to be nervous or think about it or any of the any of the above. And the tape from this game is what helps you get the Minnesota Timberwolves job in 1998? I think that, and the, the, I was always told, I mean, who knows, who knows right? Like uh,
1: it was, they needed someone young and cheap because Harlan was leaving. So we need someone young. Who's going to who's going to be young? Uh, that's what they always say. We want to find the next, you know, the next Kevin Harlan. We want to find the next great announcer. I think we know what that means. <laughs> like we, we don't have a budget. We want to fire some, sign someone young who will take this job, you know, no matter what, for their first job in the league. But I think having that tape, Bruce Kornblatt, who worked as a longtime consultant and worked in podcasts for years, he always told me that that term symphony that I used, having that behind you helps. Having an NBA tape, Helps just having to sit in that chair for one night, I guess helps. It was probably, I was very lucky in that the university that I had done games for that I had attended, BU, had bought a TV station in the 90s. So I was 23, 24. I was lucky enough. I was doing games on TV and that led to doing a sort of college hockey game of the week. And so I was doing a lot of television stuff. And I think that certainly helped too. And I was probably older than my, you know, I missed. Most of my friends and the people I know, and probably the people you know in their 20s and their life, they had sort of looking for fun, right? Like they had fun. They enjoyed their lives. They would never, I was taking eight hour bus rides to Newark, Delaware to do basketball games on radio for 50 bucks because that's what I did. Yeah.
0: So I missed out fun. On that.
1: But that was my, that was what I did. And so people say, wow, you got to the NBA, you were 27 or 28 you made it to the NBA. Yeah. But that was what I, there wasn't a lot of, uh, 20 something life. You, know, you kind of give your life to it. And I think it took, you know, until I had, until I had a son, I don't think I ever truly like snapped out of what's important. You when know, I finally had to make decisions later in life. It's like, wait a minute. No, I'm not going to fly with the team on this day to stay at a nice hotel and whatever, whatever. I'm going to be with my son. I'm going to do this. And we were talking before we started about an NBA TV hit I did last night. Or they're like, we watch NBA TV to talk about the finals. I said, I'm going to be at my son's little league game. I'm not flying with the team. I'm flying the next day. Blah blah blah. Well, we still want. Okay, but that's what you're going to get. Is that you know me at with a little league game behind me and the kids doing their little league chants. And you know, if you like chicken wings, get a hit and all the others. I never understood the correlation four years of
0: coaching little league between <laughs> biking chicken wings and your performance at the plate. But analytics are weird. <laughs> so, as you say, you're not Kevin Harlan getting the first NBA play-by-play job at 21, but you're 28. So, you're a young guy. What was it like to be a young NBA play-by-play announcer?
1: And following that dude, um, who it's funny because I listened to his pod with you, and he did his first game. It was a preseason game in Milwaukee, and I think we did a preseason game against Milwaukee. It was the first one I did. And What was odd for me, and this is when people hear this, that know my work a little bit, they're like, "What, really? Basketball? I don't know what my number one sport was coming out, but basketball was distant number four. I think the other three were tied, because generally speaking, as a kid in New York, you you can be a Knicks fan, or and you can be a Ranger fan, but it's hard to be a hardcore fan of both because it's all going on. The NBA and the NHL are going on at the same time. I always assumed I would end up in the NHL. That was where I assumed I was." going so basketball it took a different you know I'd done a lot of I'd done basketball certainly at the college level but it wasn't my natural thing so I was dealing with a new world this new NBA world and trying to become the you know the best basketball announcer in the world in a short period of time when it wasn't the way my mind was leaning like I'm going to be a baseball announcer or hockey like it's going to be a major league the Mets and the Rangers were my dream job which I think I knew It's funny, Kenny Albert's a really good friend of mine. When I was a kid, there was an article on him in the New York Times. I think when I was in high school, and about Kenny Albert, he's at NYU and he's going to do this and that and other thing. And my my own mother is like, "Look, how are you going to be the voice of the Rangers? There's already Kenny." I'm like, "Can I at least in my house? Can I get a little support? Like, even (laughs) it's bad enough what I'm competing with in the real world. I've got to got to have this article shoved in my face." Um, But you know, it's really funny when again when I talk to kids, I say, "What do you want to?" Who here wants to be the voice of the Red Sox? And of course, almost all the hands go off. I'm like, all right, well, let's do some math. And I said, you have to be ready to be the voice of the Calgary Flames or the voice of the Sacramento Kings or whatever it is that comes up. And this, The two jobs that summer that came up were uh, Nashville, had the NHL expansion team, and I'd done some NHL radio stuff and worked there before. But the Minnesota Timberwolves were looking for somebody young. They'd had a pretty big connection with Boston, not only Kevin McHale, but some of the broadcast people and whatever. And it all happened outrageously fast, like, a, you know, a, a week of a week later. Okay, come on out, fly out, do an audition with Trent Tucker. And then it, all, it just, it happened so incredibly fast. And then your life changes like that. And it was hard in that the first year I'm in that, my wife at the time, uh, was still in Boston obviously and I'm in Minnesota in this sort of like commuter apartment uh corporate apartment type thing and it was the lockout year so that was really strange you are playing eight games that was like the super lockout year looked out one of 99 where we played 50 games in like 13 weeks um so it was pretty crazy everything was going very fast and you're just looking around for uh to try to get your legs under
0: you but again the, the game is the game and the reps the reps were invaluable at that age. So basketball's a little ways down your power rankings at that point. When do you start to feel, I am a basketball guy? My voice is matched to this sport.
1: Uh, that's a great question for which you'd almost have to ask anybody but me. Because now I am to the point where the year I did the Red Sox, people were like, whoa, I didn't know he could do, you know, just from a Kate, because you're speaking different. You're not speaking. They'd heard me do basketball and hockey, and there's a different cadence to it. And it was almost like, oh, wow, well, I didn't know you could talk slow. I'm like, well, what? That's that's the jazz. <laughs> you know, that's the. <laughs> I don't talk that way in real life. I'm not going around doing frantic play-by-play on the subway or whatever. Of you probably could right? Like, oh my god, the traffic is going. This guy's just, is he gonna run the yellow? Yeah, he is, and he made it. But you you could apply it to any situation. I, I don't have an answer for that other than there were different, you know, there are moments that you're feeling comfortable on TV. At the time I was in Minnesota, the following year, I'm doing college football at ABC. So it's a heady time to be 29 and the, the ABC college football play-by-play group in the year 2000 was Brent Musburger, Keith Jackson, uh, Brad Nessler, Sean McDonough, and me. So as I always said at the time, and to this day, probably can still get away with saying it, a veritable who's who and one who's that, <laughs> you know, which, and it was hysterical because, and I always, and this is a true story. And I told him this, I learned more because to me, Brett was the NFL today growing up and he had, first, he'd come over to ESPN radio and he was doing some games, but he didn't, he, he didn't like take over that spot, but he was in such command of those college football games I learned more true story. I learned more about how to do that job by watching his games than preparing to do mine. Like that's how good he was. Just that the airline pilot command is what I call it. Of Brett being in control of that game. And he would get, well, I was cursed that year. I think my first game was 63 to nine. And my entire season, my 2000 college football season was basically sending my entire audience to whatever game Brett was doing. Cause it was invariably, like a great, some great game, whatever we'd start. I, I had the Oklahoma-Texas game. I'm 29 years old, Oklahoma-Texas, 2000. And this was the game, you know, look it up when Quentin Griffin scored like six touchdowns. Anyway, they won like 63 points, It was 42-7 at the half. Audience gone. Everything gone.
0: And the, the funny remember. part of that, seems, I'm a Texas guy. So that's a, that's a wound, but, well, but please knew, continue.
1: Well, the, the, uh, that was the, uh, I think the call that day was the eyes of Texas were blackened, have been blackened today or something like that. It was I love Mac where we'd gone down to Austin. We do big time college football throwbacks in the old days. Like you, they'd fly us in early. We'd go to the campus meet with the, you know, I'm like, this is just the best ever. I mean, I've been doing college football at Boston university, which is one double a, uh, had this great run in '93 where we beat uh, Northern Iowa with Kurt Warner and then Idaho and then one double A playoffs so at Doug Nussmeyer and uh, Hollis, the kickers. It's the strange things you run into over the years. That this is the, and then I, Boston College was great, but it's still Boston College. You're still in the Northeast and some of the places you're going is Big East football. And all of a sudden now I'm at ABC I'm at Clemson and Virginia and Oklahoma, Texas. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just amazing stuff. But the, funny, the funniest part of that year is the final regular season game we get is Drew Brees' last game at Purdue. It's Purdue-Indiana, Purdue going to the Rose Bowl. One thing we knew when I said, the who's that? We were definitely the number five team because we were the only ones that didn't have a sideline reporter. So uh, in advance, eight years before Max got the ball as of the fake sideline reporter, my side, my analyst, David Norrie, goes down to the field, and I'm all by myself calling the game, and I, which is pretty funny because now I'm 29 and I am ABC right.
0: I am the American Broadcasting
1: Company calling the end of this game by myself when I get in my ear. uh, Sean, get ready. ABC News may have to cut in. They may be ready to call the election. This is Bush Gore. Right. So somebody just realized they've got this kid on the air all by himself. And they're about to call the presidential election. And, he's, you know, so it's funny the situations you, uh,
0: you end up in. Yeah, to your Brent uh, pilot analogy, like who's who's flying the plane? Oh, that that's, guy. Oh, well, it's, and it's
1: more of a you know, as and I, again, we can say that it's funny because gambling and stuff it's just it was so forbidden when I first got in the NBA, and now it's almost like you we have analysts who are betting on things during the game with their apps and whatever because that's that's the way of it. And but the joke it used to be like a hush hush joke, but now it doesn't matter. I used to joke that Brent was probably. Brent probably had more riding on my games than I was getting paid to do them, you know, back then. back could those days. but like the thought that somebody could open up, ah, oh, they're a seven-point underdog today or whatever else. <gasps> can't, oh
0: my gosh, you can't say Three that. years doing T-Wolves games? Nope. Yep. Looking back, what is the difference between Boston sports fans and Minneapolis sports fans? I think, well, remember, I was there during the Garnett years too. So Garnett, I think, plugged into
1: something that people think of Minnesota as being, you know, as, as more reserved. And, you know, like that. But I think crowds have a lot to do with the teams. You know, if you have a lot of success. And Minnesota was good at that point. And they had Garnett. It was a loud place to play. Um, it was a loud building. Fans were very much into it. I, I love my time there. When you're, again, 26 and you're going there, I thought I'd be there forever. It was never my intention to, I'm going to go to Minnesota as a springboard job, to something national, or to come back east. That wasn't the plan. I would have been happy there you know, forever. You just, you're completely invested and then real life happens and, and, and things change. But it was, um, I guess that I wouldn't have anything to compare it to at the time. You know, looking back now, you could say, listen, Boston is insane. It's an insane place to play. There are a lot of arenas like that in the NBA, but at the time you're just, I'm the voice of the Timberwolves and I'm going to be the voice of the Timberwolves for
0: 20 years. Like this is my home and you're just completely into it at the time. I read when the Celtics uh, came to you with the radio play-by-play job, this is after three years in Minnesota, that you turned it down a number of times before accepting it. Why did you turn it down?
1: Uh, Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, I was happy where I was, um, number one. Number two, as I often have told people over the years, anybody can go from local radio to NBA television or national TV. It takes a very special pioneer to go the other way. Like that's that uh, was a really bold choice, I thought on my part eventually to uh to to do that. like well, yeah, I know I'm on ABC at twenty nine years old, and I'm doing college football, and I had this TV job in Minnesota, but you know what? that's the the appeal of that much, much smaller audience uh is just something that I can't uh, turn down. It was my wife at the time was from Boston, and she she wanted to go home, and I understood that. And at the time, you know, you get you get pitched differently. You get pitched, people are in your ear when you're young, right? Hey, come do radio for a couple of years, then you'll slide over and do TV. You have an agent at the time. It's like, hey, don't, we'll keep you on TV. Don't worry about it. We'll keep that, like, Boston's closer to New York. This is a logic, literally, from the agent side. Boston's close to New York. So therefore, it'll be, and, you know, now you realize, okay, that's a little silly, even if the world has changed, but uh, I didn't it didn't seem like the right thing to do for a variety of reasons, but eventually you do it for family and something that did help change my mind was when Cedric Maxwell called me uh, that summer trying to pitch me on it. And I said, this could be a thing. This could be, you know, some of the parts, you know, the whole greater than some of the parts type deal. And it's turned out to be not only that, but the longest relationship that either one of us has ever had in our life. So. Who knew we would be uh, that we would be the soulmates that would be growing old together.
0: And the combo of you and Maxwell works well. Why? <sighs> Opposites.
1: Uh, northeast, younger sensibility, uh, North Carolina uh, country sensibility. Um, the 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 black guy that likes James Taylor and the white guy that likes Jay Z. Um, the, uh, the opposite there. I think, you know, he had worked with Howard David who's, who's tremendous, but Howard has sort of an older sensibility. I think the age, the age difference, the different, the approach of wanting <sighs> to speak. You know, we're in a time of, and this has evolved. You're not thinking in 2001 when you take this job, you're not envisioning 15 years later of stick to sports and Black Lives Matter. And you're not envisioning having last week, Brian, to open a game in Miami talking about how 15 years earlier, we had taken the same bus ride from the same hotel to the same arena, and I'd had to open the game talking about the massacre of Virginia Tech. And here it is 15 years later, and I couldn't... How many games have I had to open talking about Pulse Nightclub or uh, or Sandy Hook? Or whatever, and it it became a change. you know you're not thinking at the time in two thousand and one of these life events and you're getting older and them mattering and being able to talk about them, but to that sensibility also with the two of us that there's something bigger at play here. And as we grow older with our audience, we're affected by
0: real life and never been afraid to to share. Who do you think of as a typical listener of a Celtics game on the radio? That's a great question uh the people who work people who drive ubers people who are
1: out and about and it's really funny because you know the sometimes now because you're doing tv you know, i've done done more games on tv now you do a lot of pre and post game tv and so once in a while i get recognized which i can care less about but my son finds it funny because my wife gets recognized all the time and he you know, like he really enjoys that and kind of tries to rub that in my face. That, that that's well, they know who she is, like whatever. Um, that's like, do you want to eat tonight or not? So I suggest you tone it down. <laughs> that uh <laughs> where I will get the funny, the funny part, the reason I brought that up was I will sometimes get recognized by my voice in well, Ubers having your name or whatever, but in taxis. People who drive around and they'll, you know, you said, Yeah, how are you? What's going on? Blah blah blah. And then they'll realize that they've heard your voice a lot because they drive around. Listen, I have a job. First of all, the year I was doing the Red Sox, I would always say, "Man, I got Joe Castiglione, the voice of the the radio voice of the Red Sox, has the greatest job because he is the voice of in New England of summer barbecues and days at the beach, and Max and I are the voice of scraping off your car." You know, and these or some awful winter things that are you know whatever you have to do in in New England, but it's I think and the funny all the other funny part is when people always come up to you and say they have some story as to why they were listening, like they needed an excuse. Hey, my cable went out. I had to listen. I got stuck in the car. I had to hear it. And I'm like, we do this every day. <laughs> we're we're always here to do this. So I think it. And there's also the people that really. He just what want to hear us. They're either fans of us. Sometimes the national games are on. Um, players only was a big boon <laughs> to us when Turner Turner went with that. Um, you know, we get that. And the people it's harder now in the old days, turn down the sound and watch the game on TV. Now, as you know, the games are delivered in so many different ways. People are getting them on their through a streaming service, or they're getting them on satellite. It's very difficult. And oftentimes our audio comes, free. you can't, you have to work. You really got to put in work to make it match up. So uh, dedicated is the answer of the people that really want to listen. And as we've branched into the social media thing, that's another thing I've had to realize sometimes the hard way. And it's why I try to do as much as I can on there because not that it's not a dumpster fire because it is most of the time. But I reach more people often. if I If I hit something on Twitter and it starts bouncing around, That audience is much greater than are hearing me at any one specific
0: time. I'm a serious guy. Was it a big deal when they started picking up local broadcasts like yours and taking them way beyond New England? Here's where that was noticeable. I
1: developed some friendships with some people, and just you hear from fans in general, but also met people in different industries. uh, I was going to say out there, out where you are, out here, because we became afternoon drive in California. So a lot, I would hear from a lot of people, Ken Levine, former uh, voice of the Baltimore Orioles, writer on cheers and mash or whatever. I'd get ra- a random note from him. Now, you know, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, I've known him for years, but I get random notes from people out in California who would listen because of so serious.
0: That's how I think Sirius changed it that way. Uh, so, certainly for the, in the, in the time zones. Where do you fall on the concept of homerism as a local announcer? Uh, what is it they say? if, it is your ch-
1: if that's your choice, that's your choice. Mean, I used to be as a younger,, uh, more, you know, the Billy Joel angry young man, whatever, like, my way's right and your way's wrong. It would make me blanch, right? I hated it, hated it. Now I realize, do what you, do your style and make your style work. The Celtics, of course, have the ultimate tradition of that with Johnny Most. It was carried on with Tommy. I think it, I I don't think you can do it. You can't do it on radio. And by the way, Johnny wasn't, you know, Johnny in his older days, obviously had his foibles and whatever, but he knew what he was doing. When he was younger, he would get to games in the 60s and he would, the first thing he would ask the engineer is, is this game going to be on TV or not? Because if it wasn't, then it was the Wild West and he could make whatever story he wanted to make out of it. I think it's irresponsible on radio, on TV, what Tommy did it was awesome because Tommy would go, that's ridiculous. That's not a foul. And of course, you, you could see it. Of course, it's a foul. Like it's, but that, Tommy, do you. And I think there are some people in the league that still do it. And it's a style. Gus Johnson has, nobody else should be doing what Gus does. He does better than anybody else in the world. Don't, it's not, there's no right or wrong way to, as I often tell my wife, when she catches me staring at the dance team, it's not better or worse, honey. It's just different. And then uh, it's funny that doesn't go well. I try it, but it doesn't. It doesn't really fly. But you you get the point. That every do what you do, and do it well. I am a listen. I'm meticulous about play by play. I'm a student of the history of it. It matters to me. It is. I, I do. I don't take myself seriously, but I take it very, very seriously. So that is not my style. And I think it hurts your. You know, the credibility is when you praise the Celtics. It means something if you're not doing it all the time. And if you say that wasn't a great call, people know when Max and I say that it's if it was a bad call in favor of the Celtics, we're going to say
0: it because it doesn't mean anything. If you can do it the other way around. That's an interesting point about radio that because we can't see the picture, yeah, you got to be there is, gotta, there's more of a commitment to calling yeah. it like it is. We get
1: true. listen. I have a I have a national announcer sensibility, and that once in a while I will get listen when the Jimmy Butler game has happened. First of all, you live long enough, you see everything. You live really long enough, you see everything twice. And I called that game already, sitting in the exact same spot, sitting next to the same guy. I called that game. I saw it, and it was how I told my son about it for years. And then, much to his chagrin, he got to see it live. You get to see it actually happen, and there, you know, you get a few. Again, you could never react to Twitter. And listen, the smartest, the guys' friend, good friends of mine, Kevin is one. Ian Eagles another. They're above it. They don't have to deal with it. I do it because it's a way to reach fans and it's, it's too important. You have to sort of go with the flow and evolve or die or whatever. Once you get to a certain point where you don't have to be on it, God bless you. But once, so you can't overreact and people come at you because that's three people out of 100,000. So what does it mean? But I'll get the pushback of, you know, in more colorful language than this. Stop saying nice things about LeBron. Stop saying nice things about Jimmy Butler. Who's who are you announcing for? That kind of stuff. But when the Jimmy Butler game is happening, if you don't recognize you're calling a moment in NBA history, and that Jimmy Butler is painting this this masterpiece that people are going to be talking about for years, you're not doing your job. If you're doing uh, Johnny in the old days when Bernard King would come up and score, he'd be like, "And Bernard from twelve, from twelve, got it, good, good. Bernard again from twenty-eight, good." And it's, you're not, it's this is an incredible thing going on. So you have to, you have to call You have to use your voice. This, this is the whole radio thing. and Again, it could go for hours, but you have to use your voice to describe more than what's happening. The tone of your voice and how you're using it. In hockey, the best example is in hockey, you can't say everything that's happening. So you have to use your voice to imply danger. That there's a goal scoring situation. You have to be able to use your voice. Your voice is not just, if you just read it as a transcript, Jason Tatum for three in the corner. Good, but it doesn't tell you was it. A, you have to use your voice. Say, that was an amazing shot or it wasn't, or it was
0: going to go on. I can't believe that went in. You have to be able to communicate other things with the cadence of your voice. A couple of moments. I want to ask you about 2003, the Boston globe reported that a foul smelling substance was released behind the Celtics bench during a game. And your reaction, according to the paper was I'm about to die, but we're on the air. What do you remember about that?
1: Nothing until you brought it up. So I haven't thought of that for years, other than my favorite part of it is Max. When that it turned out, we found out months later that it was, it's funny, you can find this probably on YouTube because it was a national TV game where they had to clear out the Celtics bench. As it turns out, there was this big giant battery. Like imagine a a little nine-volt battery you hold in your hand, but it looked like a car battery size. And it had exploded or reached the end of its battery life or whatever. And all of a sudden these fumes were like coming out near the self expansion. And it turns out I was at point zero where it happened. And I remember the first the only time I felt in my life that I couldn't breathe. You were trying to get a gasp of air and you couldn't I couldn't breathe for a couple of seconds, which is terrifying. And we were going behind the baseline and grabbing a if we had a wireless mic mic. We had some kind of other mic to do interviews or whatever and just describing what was happening. Because That's what you do. I mean, this is I'm not going to be Edward R. Morrow. This is London. Like, this is as close as I'm going to get to reporting from a you know a war here. I'm not going to be in Afghanistan, like embedded with troops. So, you're just describing what's happening. And the funny thing is, Max almost is like went home because he thought the night was like, that's, that's as close as I'm getting to any of this stuff. I'm done. I'm out of here. We had James Posey fly over the table and take me out one time, and he Max was like, That's it. I'm done. Like, he thought the night's over once you get hit by a player. It's officially the end of the night, but I, I didn't occur to me, wouldn't have occurred to me to do anything else, but to describe what's happening. Like, give me a mic
0: because, you know, something's happening and people have to know. This is another one from 2010. And since you just got finished calling a Celtics Heat playoff series, there was a playoff game in Miami and a woman starts screaming at you to sit down during the game. Oh my God. What happened there?
1: The only reason that's fresh in my mind is because we were just in Miami. I have my own little location in Miami. Uh, So the Black Day in the history of NBA radio was when, and we believe it to be Mark Cuban, but this has never really been confirmed, who went to the league in 2006, I believe, and said, we want to sell these seats that the broadcasters are in. And that has begun the eventual process of all the broadcasters and a lot of TV guys now too moved off of courtside to various locations throughout the arena. Some are absolutely horrific, uh, including mine in Boston, which is, you can't, what's again, the word I'm looking for, see the game from where I sit. (laughs) I was, I was very well prepared for the pandemic and calling games off TV. Let me put it that way. I was extremely well, people are like, wow, you're doing a good job of that. Yeah. I've had some little practice doing that. But that one was in Miami. They moved us upstairs. And for years, you can't really, if you sit in the spot, you're like, you're so high. You're too low to really see the, and I'm fine standing. I've done hockey and football for years. I standing's great. I prefer standing. It's fine. But there was never anybody in the seats behind us. In 2010, we got to the playoffs and they had sold the seats behind us. And so I'm just calling the game like I always had. And then eventually there's this woman like yelling and screaming, you know, to sit down like security's coming instead of like moving her. They're talking to me. I'm like during the broadcast. It was, un- I've never seen anything. I mean, the NBA wasn't too happy with that, but it was really, uh- and then at the end, I- Paul Pierce did a game winner, I think. It was game three. Paul Pierce, a game winner. And we'd kind of go into the post-game show and I'd pulled out a chair, the chair of the whatever. And I sat down next to Max. And I think she went berserk when she saw. I'd had a chair the whole time. And
0: like, yeah, threw a bottle of water or whatever. But yeah, So what happens. you put the announcers up in the crowd. Scary stuff can... She throws a bottle of water at you at the end of the game.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen again, going back to my pro wrestling thing. So like Mick
0: Foley, all these guys are, these are good friends of mine. They've had much worse while they've been working, like throwing. Well, the, yeah, the, you know, but you're not really required to, you know, fall through a steel cage when you're calling true. a Celtics playoff game. Did, could listeners on the air tell that anything had happened? During they could tell because I had to go off the air at one point because the security guy was talking to me while I was calling the game.
1: And I literally had to stop like, they were so out of what, not understanding what was happening that there's a real live... Again, some of that happens when you move the... Broad- Obviously, the broadcasts are going to feel less important if you move them up into the crowd or into the middle of... A lot of these buildings weren't equipped. And this area in Miami is like a lot of places where fans could sort of walk behind you to get to their seats. It's not a real, you know, booth. You're not really isolated or protected, you know, from the fans. So this is that. that that's a new level. But, hey, if you can call game's not being able to see the court. If you can call a game, what's the, the, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Like if you can dodge a bottle of water, calling a playoff game, I would think that would add to your resume, right? Like, wow, imagine what he could do if we weren't throwing things at him. Like, you know, during this, during this amazing moment, that's the, they moved us in Boston after the championship. That was the last game we ever did was when we won the championship. And then they moved us. And I always compared it to when they raised the mound after Maris and Mantle hit all the home runs. Like, well, it's obviously too easy for him
0: being able to see it, so let's see how good he is when he can't see the game. Let's find out now. <laughs> Few of my uh, Ringer teammates have moonlighted as a color analyst on your broadcast. I want you to give me your review of them. Do your best Chad Finn here. Uh, Jackie McMullen did at least one game with you. How did she fare? Years ago, Jackie's the
1: best. She just wrote that story on email. Open today. I mean, I've known Jackie for so long. And I remember I remembered she was, I brought up the story when she sat down of one of my favorite Jackie story that she always told about Red Auerbach when she would cover because Jackie is like this is she's pioneer beyond pioneer. You should see the younger women who go into this field. And when they know that like I know Jackie or they see Jackie, and it's like it's it's really, it's pretty cool. But I remember her sitting down and telling the story of one of the first times she met Red Auerbach, She was at a college game at Boston Garden, you know, writing covering it. And at halftime, Red came over to ask her what she thought, and she said, "Well, uh, I like Michael Adams. He's sort of, you know, the way he breaks down the defense, and whatever." And Red stops, says, no, no, I mean, "What do you think of the cheerleaders? Aren't you the, like the, the cheerleader? Co-? You know, jeez. So we've come a we've come a long way. Um, I love. We had a period of time where we would have a lot of different guests in. I just felt like Max and I. It was like the sitcom when you get to the ninth season or the tenth season. It just brings start bringing in guest stars because it's you know." This is a different perspective every time, but can we get Matt, a new Jackie kid in and...
0: here to get this get some plot lines? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, uh, Max, do you have like a younger cousin or something we could pretend, you know, pretend <laughs> as like a new kid. Also, read that Ryan Rosillo, yeah. uh, well known for his career in Double A baseball, uh, sat in on a few games. How did he do?
1: He did great, and you know what? it's funny when Ryan Ryan is somebody that we had with us at the radio station with the Celtics for I guess this is almost twenty years ago now and what was funny was in 2003 2004 i remember saying this to people you knew ryan was going to be a star ryan was good but what he was going to be great at and it's played out this way hadn't been invented in 2004 it didn't exist yet his role think about what ryan is and his impact in all the different areas that didn't really exist in 2000 so he would he actually there was a year he filled in for me um i used the you know, filling in the play by play. I think I'm sure we did a game together, a couple of games together or whatever. Um, he was famously on the uh, first, first thing he'll tell you is he was on the flight. But it was like a shaky flight where they had to like nosedive to avoid a collision with another plane. And they thought they all thought they were going down. Of course that was the one flight. was you know, I There's a whole separate joke about that. The Mike Gorman and I were the only two people not on this flight because I was doing the frozen four and Mike was a New York game. So Mike was, you know, just driving to it. And the joke would have been that the entire you know organization would have been wiped out, and I still wouldn't have moved up because Mike, you know, Mike and I would have been the only two that survived. But Brian, um, you know, again, he just had he just had a different perspective, right, from the beginning. And I just, I, to me, the the number of different voices you can have, and from different places, because you, Max and I, it's twenty years, almost so two thousand games we've done together. It's not I don't want to say it's an echo chamber, but it's really nice to bring in
0: somebody different, especially somebody, you know, these names you're mentioning are deeply respected people who've been around, but it's good. It's good to break it up to 20 plus years of calling NBA games. What's still hard for you to do on a night by night basis. Afternoon games. (laughs) When you asked me to do this, I said, well, listen, uh, what time Eastern
1: time? It's what it's after 11 o'clock Eastern time right now. I'm like, I just flew across country today. I'm good. The, uh, I, the the joke, the running joke with me has always been like, if I stayed in this job, like I, who knows, I could end up in the Hall of Fame in my job. If every game is an afternoon game. I'd be out of work. And no, I just can't. Uh, airline pilots, drug dealers, and us were the only people whose jobs start eight hours earlier the next day, which was another part going back to <laughs> baseball. The first, the first taste I got, I loved every minute of being, a, of doing the Red Sox. It was a dream come true. That first taste I got of day game after a night game. whoa. And that was a whole different because that that you know baseball is a season long cumulative preparation of being at the ballpark and being around and I, it was always what was fascinating to me about that was I struggled at first being in the clubhouse, just talking to guys because in my head I was you got to get upstairs, you got to finish your stuff, you got to do your work and get, you know get ready for the game and have everything whatever when you're in these casual conversations and it took me finally about three weeks four weeks into it, I finally had the moment of. This is the job. This is the job. Talking to Dustin Pedroia about the Sacramento Kings and talking to Mike Carp about where his kids are going to go to school and different things about different pitchers and whatever, this comes up later. Like you may use this stuff, you may not, but that is the job. And what's, I've always felt the true art of this, of the guys that do different sports. And Mike Tarico and I always talked about this. We always sort of like commiserated, but realized that a conversation you have with an offensive coordinator in a meeting on a Friday before a college football game might teach you something you use in a basketball game a year later. Like you, especially now when coaches all want to be tied in, I'm doing college hockey game and go to the frozen Four every year and do that, which was a, you know, a true labor of love. And i have the younger college hockey coaches say, Hey, can I get Brad Stevens number? Because I want to talk to him about, and you realize that the younger people don't see boundaries like hockey coaches see things that basketball coaches are doing and the football coaches are doing, and they all want to be,
0: you know, they, they want to be interchangeable and, and whatever. So. Couple more for you. You mentioned the ABC football stuff. Is a network job, something that's still interesting to you? It, it's all interesting to me doing,
1: I started doing the MMA thing a few years ago was a jump off a cliff because I knew, literally knew nothing about it. And I said, can I do this at the highest level? Can I be the number two play-by-play announcer in a sport that I know nothing? I'm starting from scratch. And it wasn't like studying the history of the Visigoths. I mean, it was 20 years old. You could study a lot of sport, and most of it was available on YouTube you know, at the time, and you could do it, and it was a challenge. Challenges matter. Listen, when I was, of course, when I was 25, 30 years old, that was the dream. And I realized that for me, as I said, I do take it... Take it too seriously. Of course, I do. I want to be great at what I do. I love, I love when my friends. These are dear friends of mine, Mike Breen and Kevin, and I, and whatever. I I like it when they're doing the game because I want to do a better broadcast than them. Not because I don't love them to death, but because they're the best. And I want to be, you know, that that's the level that I aspire to be every night. Like the only thing, people say, do you want to do this and you want to do that. It really becomes more. I want people when they hear me when they hear a broadcast to know, yeah he's got me. like he's he's one of those guys because that's the you know the work you put in it's not the hardest thing for kids to understand because I didn't understand it when I was a kid because I grew up playing sports and when you play sports, the best players play, and the best players make it to the NBA and the best players make it. This is not a meritocracy it never has been, and it never will be, and you can't you've got to do whatever is the job in front of you do that as well as you can possibly do it. And, you know, of, co- of course, when you're younger, yeah, you want to do the world series and you want to do this and you want to be recognized. And then you realize, and again, being a dad changes that being a dad who has been through some of the things that I, you know, I, I've been somewhat public about this. I had a very long, ugly custody fight for my son, which I, I won, but it took years away from you say years away from what you were focused on. Well, that was that became the most important thing to me, and you know, my whole life was I want to be the best play-by-play announcer there ever was. And then you say, well, I now I want to be the best dad there ever was. And there are nights I still listen when the, when the light goes on tomorrow night, and it's game one. Of course, I want it to be, I want it to be great. I want it to be special. But you can't. You get caught up chasing things that you can't control. You know, it's like it will drive you. It'll, it'll drive you a little crazy. I was listening. As you said, I was 29 years old. I was in that spot. I was the next, you know, whatever. Strange things happen, you know, people and you don't, people are in spots because they're in spots and you want to, you have to be lucky and you have to be good and control
0: what you can control, I guess, is the, uh, is the answer to that. Well, in here, you flew from Boston to San Francisco today. You're going to call game one of the finals tomorrow night. But then you promised your son you're going to take him to the finals. So then what happens after that?
1: But I have to go back and get him (laughs) after game one and bring him out for game two. And it reminded me of, uh, you know, when I was doing the MMA, I had signed on to do a certain number of shows and it was a brand new world and it was exciting. And the company that I worked for, Bellator on Spike TV, they started expanding internationally. And suddenly I was doing crazy international shows in the middle of the NBA season. And I was going to like, Italy and then I'd fly back to the States and do a couple of games and go to San Antonio and Atlanta and then meet the rest of the crew back in uh, you know, Budapest or London or Dublin for the, you know, the other half of the European tour. And you're not sleeping and you're losing your mind and you're focused on your work. And I had this picture of my son who was five at the time, and he's wheeling my bag to the elevator, like walking with me, wheeling my bag, and he's got this huge smile on his face. Oh, I'm helping dad take. And the picture used to make me smile. And one day it stopped making me smile. And I realized I, I can't I need to be with my son if that hurts me professionally, it hurts me professionally. But there was just a point where, you know, enough is enough. And I've been lucky enough to go back last year. I did a bunch of shows and uh, you know, you have you want to deliver moments. And again, you're thinking when you grow up, you're thinking, I want to call the Super Bowl, right? And I want to be in the chair where Joe Bucky is and where the, where the elite guys are. I got to do a, an event in Dublin last year, and you guys can, you can YouTube it, where we had, uh, you know, a walk to the ring, where we knew, to the cage, where we knew the fans were going to be very much involved in it. And the people who might be watching may not know the backstory of the, of the song that, that Dolores O'Riordan wrote, the, the the cranberries, you know, whatever. And so you can tell this story and you realize that whatever it is, if you're doing a high school game, doing an NBA finals game, if you're doing a fight in Dublin, there's so much drama in life. There's so many real stories of real people. And it maybe comes from growing up watching the Olympics and stuff like where the storytelling was so good that you realize there's, these are shared experiences and the real world, as we discussed earlier, can get pretty ugly. And we come to this because it makes us feel good, not because it's an escape, but because there's cool real world stuff in sports happening too. And it's you know amazing to be able to tell those stories no matter what they were. We're here, I'm in San Francisco now. Uh, I always remember this one. In 2006, we had a rookie named Leon Poe, later played on the championship team uh, in 2008. He had, he grew up in this area, very poor, like a lot of the guys who have met, this extraordinary success. And he and his mom, to make ends meet, used to sell things in the flea market that they would have every Sunday outside what was Oracle Arena in that parking lot. And that was, they did that to survive. And I got to call the moment he walked onto that floor for the first time as an NBA player. And these are the little, these are the little things that, and that was 15 years ago. And I remember that moment because it's a, it's a human story. And it's why those of us who were lucky enough to get to do it chose a life rather than you know carrying a briefcase and having a fancy job. We get on airplanes to call games because it captivated us and drew us in as kids. And I heard, again, your conversation with Kevin Harlan talking about enthusiasm. How can you not be enthusiastic? You want to deliver these moments the way they were delivered to you as a kid. Every game I go to probably won't see too many kids there tomorrow because we won't be able to afford $2,000 seats, but every game I go to, I try to find a kid, an eight year old kid, a 10 year old kid, just seen walking around with that look on their face. I remember that was me. And I would try, my friends and I would wait for four innings, scouting out some good seat behind home plate or near there, You'd sneak into it. And I didn't have money to bribe the usher. So we'd get kicked out right away whatever. And. Um, that was a moment in that 2010 in the finals in game seven, another dear friend of mine, Doris Burke and I were sitting together that whole series. And at the end of the first quarter, seventh game of the NBA finals sitting courtside while Eddie Murphy and Steven Spielberg and Dustin hop, they're all behind us, right? There are a few rows behind us. So she goes to interview doc at the end of the first quarter and they hand out the stat sheets. They're just like, you know, they put like pieces of paper right in front of us. And I turned one, I turned mine over and I put two circles on it. One little tiny circle, one big circle. And I put it back in front of her when she sat down. And the big circle said world. And the little tiny circle in the middle said us. And we were just kicking each other on the table during that series. Like, do you realize where we are? So, um, of course, it's a job. And, of course, it's difficult some days to get out of bed when you haven't slept and fly, take your kid to school and then fly across country. But, come on. This is uh, how many of us are lucky enough to... Get to do what we wanted to do from the time
0: we were 12. So make the most of it. You know, try to do it well. Sean Grandy, thanks for coming on the press box. My pleasure, Brian. It's time for the second weekly edition of David Shoemaker Guesses: the Strained Pun Headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about Top Gun Maverick was high praise to the danger clone. As promised, today's headline is also about summer movies. It comes from Dana Stanley. It originated in the LA Times, but was printed in multiple newspapers. David, it's about Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Okay. In this case, I want you to think about C.S. Lewis and one of his most famous books. What was the LA Times' strained pun headline? Well, this has got to be the Lion,
1: the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Because Scarlet Witch is a part of this. So there we go. Uh,
0: the The Lion. So what are Simon. we doing with Lion? Something that rhymes. The, something that might be in a superhero movie. The flying.
1: The, there the, we the go. The flying, the witch, and the warlock. The flying, the, the witch, the and the
0: flying, the witch, and the what does Doctor Strange wear? Oh, red robe. There we or, go. Oh, great. The flying, the witch, and the red robe. <laughs> If you have to change the the syncopation, if you have to change the way
1: that you push the words <laughs> out of your mouth, it might not be the 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 perfect pun, but I'll give him some credit.
0: Same here. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes, Shoemaker and I'm back Monday, with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David.
1: See you later, Brian.